open them to Joshua chapter 13. And this evening in our study of Joshua, I'd like to uh, finish the message that I started last week. Uh, preach part number two of the sermon entitled, The Inheritance of the Saints. We're in a portion of Joshua right now that really doesn't lend itself very well to exposition. And so sometimes it's hard to really uh, dig down and find something here that will be to our benefit, in in these particular chapters at least. But one thing we need to, to learn most assuredly, that everything that we have in the Bible, it's all God's Word. All God's Word is, is written for our understanding. It has something there for us. And God has never put any uh, superfluous passages in the Word. All of it's important. The chapters that we're talking about here, chapters 13 to 21, are, are filled with different names and places. We find here the instructions for the boundaries of, of the nation of Israel. And really, this is the story of the inheritance. This is where the people actually come into the land, and God instructs Joshua to divide this up between all of the people and give their particular portion of this inheritance. And of course, this was given to the children of Israel some 500 years before this time. And that's when God spoke to Abraham and gave, gave him a covenant that said that this land would belong to his people and to the descendants of Abraham. And so now through much trial and tribulation, the children of Israel have entered into the land and they're ready to take possession. Now all of the work of taking over Canaan had not yet been done. Now the major battles are over with by the time that we come to this particular point, but still the children of Israel have to drive out remaining pockets of resistance. But instead of having the whole nation of Israel uh, working together in one large army to do that, Joshua said that what each tribe must do, they must take their portion of the land and then drive out the remaining Canaanites. And then when they have done that, they would enjoy the land that God had given. Now, I believe that uh, this is a symbolism. Uh, Israel's inheritance is a symbolism of the inheritance that God has given all of us who are children of his. Now, of course, we are not physical descendants of Abraham, and God did not promise to give us a particular portion of physical land on this earth, but God has promised us something else. And we don't have a particular parcel. Uh, God hasn't given us that. But as the spiritual seed of Abraham, those of us that are saved, we are children of God by faith, the Scripture says. And so God has promised us something much bigger, something much more impressive, something much more wonderful than a a piece of property on a small earth. What God has given us is not only the earth itself, he's given us the entire universe, and he's given heaven as our inheritance. Oh, in the message last week, it was it was my intention to show you that God is a covenant-keeping God. He made a covenant with Abraham that guaranteed Israel an earthly inheritance, and of course that is a physical thing. But God has also made another guarantee and another covenant and another promise, and that's what he made with his son Jesus Christ before the world was ever created. And he promised that all who came to faith in him, a special chosen people, would receive an inheritance in the land of heaven. Now, tonight I'd like you to stand with me as we're going to read just two verses in chapter 13 of Joshua. And uh, we're going to read the same verses that we read last week. We'll start with verse number 1, Joshua 13, verse number 1, where it says, Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed." 
Now, verse number 7. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, uh, we ask you, Lord, to open up your word to us. Help us to understand this better. And may we see the great covenant that's been made, the covenant that promises us an inheritance because we are believers in you. So we thank you, Lord, for this tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've been discussing God's covenant, and I do want to take just a few minutes to review the information that we talked about last week, and this will sort of help us get our bearings as we talk about the next part of the message tonight. I began the message last week by speaking, first of all, about how God established a covenant. God works through covenants. He works through the basis of certain promises that he makes. And in the case of Israel, uh, the promise that God made to Israel was the land of Canaan. And it was the result of a covenant that God had made with Abraham. Uh, God chose Abraham, one person out of all of the people that were on the earth. He chose this one person among all. And he called Abraham to be the progenitor of a multitude of people. And out of this call to Abraham... There arose a nation that God would bless. God said, this is my people. He said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I promise you that you're going to have a land of inheritance. And the place that I'll give you is Canaan. And that was the covenant that God made with Abraham. Well, in the time of Joshua, that covenant is realized. As I said a moment ago, it was 500 years prior to this time that the promise was made. But now the people are ready to realize the covenant. And God gives them everything that's necessary in order for them to go in and possess the land. Well, in the same manner, on a spiritual plane, God has a chosen people. And likewise, he's promised that he would bring his chosen people into their inheritance. Now, as God provided a a way and a means that uh, Israel would possess their land, so God has provided all means that are necessary. He's taken care of everything that could possibly be imagined in order to allow us to come into the inheritance that he's given. And we come into that inheritance in only one way, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that's because God established his covenant with his own Son. The covenant is not with me, it's not with you. The covenant is made with Jesus. And God said that I'm going to give you a people. He promised this before the foundation of the world. And then Jesus said, I will redeem these people for my own. Then the next thing we noticed is that God bestowed the covenant. What God did by an act of his own free grace, he he, uh, gave this covenant with Abraham. He promised it to him. While Abraham was still uncircumcised, Abraham was an idolater, he was unconverted, and yet God came to him and spoke to him and gave him that promise. And it wasn't a reward. I mean, God didn't reward Abraham because Abraham had done something great or because Abraham uh, was a person already of faith, nor did he see in Abraham that he would be a man of faith, but rather God chose him out of his free grace while he was a sinner and while he was an unbeliever. And that was when God, Jehovah God, came and spoke to him. And he did not yet know the one true God. And likewise, when we come to Abraham's sons, uh, Isaac was chosen. Ishmael was the one who was rejected. And Isaac became the seed of promise. Then when Isaac had children, it was Jacob that was chosen. 
And nothing at all could be clear in Scripture to us than that uh, God makes choices based out of the counsels of his own will. Choices by God are made of free grace without any merit upon the part of any individual. And that's abundantly clear when you talk about Jacob. Uh, Jacob, as we discussed, was a conniving schemer. He was a dishonest person. And most of us wouldn't dare trust him, much less would we choose him. And yet he's the one that God chose. And the Bible says that he chose Jacob before he was born. Before Jacob could ever do any good or evil, God decided to choose him. And so God is the one who has the right to bestow this covenant. And he bestows it on whom he will. And then God leaves all others that are unbelievers to their just condemnation. And so we see here in this that God chooses discriminately. It's according to the good pleasure of his will. And God always maintains that right. God is the creator. He's the sovereign God. And because there are none that are righteous, there's not one single person who ever chooses God. And so God must choose us because we're unable to choose him. So God established a covenant. He bestowed the covenant. Now we're ready to move on to some new material tonight as we look at part number two of this message. And the next thing we see about God's covenant is that God interceded for the covenant. It took God to actually put this covenant into place. Now, there, there is a problem as it concerns you and me when we think about the covenant. Uh, just as Abraham knew nothing at all about the one true God, uh, neither would he ever have known God unless God saw fit to reveal himself. When Moses was called out to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, there was no way that Moses could have known what God wanted or known that he was one that was chosen by God unless God saw fit to reveal himself and came to him and showed him how he would be able to deliver Israel out of that bondage. And then on a spiritual level today, uh, as, as children of God, we also have no way of knowing God. There's no way that we can come to him unless God decides that he'll reveal himself to us. The Bible teaches that all people were dead in trespasses and sin, and that comes about because of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam sinned, and when Adam did, he plunged all of mankind into spiritual death. Now, the Scripture says in Romans 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So spiritual death and physical death, those are the results of Adam's sin. And just as a man that is physically dead is, is dead to all things of the physical world, it's also true that a person who is spiritually dead is dead to the things of a spiritual world. He can't understand God. He can't see God because he's spiritually dead. Now, God is a spirit, the Bible says. And we could never come to God. We can never see God because of this spiritual death. Now, here is the real problem. God has promised spiritual life to all of those that were chosen before the foundation of the world, and yet all that are chosen are spiritually dead. And so how are we going to receive God's inheritance? How are we ever going to come to God when we're spiritually dead? And then not only that, but the Bible teaches that as we're dead in trespasses and sin, there's no spiritual life in us, there's no way we can receive any spiritual benefits. And then on top of that, we're, we're condemned to eternal death. 
Because we've transgressed God's law. And so there are two things that have to take place before a person can ever realize who God is or come to him. Before he can ever receive the benefit of this covenant that God has given, two things have to happen. He has to be brought to spiritual life and he must be absolved from the obligation to punishment. And so when God chose people, they had no way to receive what God has given. And so that's why God has to intercede for this covenant. In other words, God has to do something to enable a man to receive the benefits of the covenant that he's made. Now, here we see, first of all, that there are some things that that God did. First of all, he provided a substitute for us. And this was absolutely necessary. God must provide a substitute. And he took the initiative because man could not do anything for himself. That spiritual death prevents him from doing anything in the spiritual world. And so God has to intercede. Now, again, the Bible says that all men died in Adam. And in that sense, Adam was the substitute for all of us. Now, this is very important that we understand that Adam is the federal head of the human race. He is the representative of all the human race. And so God tried all of the human race in Adam. And what that means is that God didn't have to take every one of us individually. I mean, when each of us is born into the world, God did not have to take us into the Garden of Eden to see what we would do. Because if we had been created with the very same aptitude that Adam had, if we'd been placed in the garden, then we would have done exactly what Adam did. And so this substitute that we have is one who failed. He failed just as we would have failed. And when he did, he plunged us all into spiritual death. And so God had to provide a different substitute. There had to be another substitute who would come. And this substitute had to stand in the place of all who received Christ or all who received God by faith. And of course, that substitute was Jesus. Now, you might complain and you say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that Adam should be a substitute for me or that he should stand for me. I should have the opportunity to do what Adam did. I should be able to be in the same place that Adam was, be placed in the Garden of Eden, and I'm going to do something differently. I'm convinced I would do differently than Adam did. Well, if you're going to complain that uh, Adam was the substitute for anyone in the human race, then you also have to complain that Jesus is your substitute. And you ought to have the right to do exactly what Jesus did also. But here's what you'd find out if you did. You would miserably fail. You don't have the ability of the sinless Son of God to do what he did. You would absolutely fail if you tried to do what Christ did. But don't you know, folks, that there are a lot of people who do, in fact, try to do what Christ alone could do? I mean, what they tried to do is substitute their own works for their salvation. They, they, all the things that they do, and they think that this is going to make us closer to God, and they think that this is the way I can be reconciled to God, when in fact that all of those works will fail miserably. None of those things will substitute for us. Now, that brings us to another thing that God had to do. Even if man, I mean, even if it were possible for us to do enough good works that that would bring us into favor with God, then we've still got this problem of all the past sins that we've committed. And we've still got a problem with the sinful nature that we have. Something has to be done with that. And so God did something else for us. God has to intercede further. So he provided a substitute, and then next, he provided a a, a sacrifice. Uh, Something has to be done about sin... 
All these sins that we have committed, God's law has been broken, and it's impossible for God to say, well, I'm just going to pardon people without satisfaction to law. That I'm just going to say, well, it's okay, just don't worry about that. You have an excuse, I'll pardon you. When the Bible says so clearly that every, every sin against God requires a just recompense of reward. And that simply means that for every sin that we commit, there is a merit of eternal punishment for that. The law has to be satisfied. Now, only Christ could satisfy God for sin. We've sinned against an eternal God. Every offense merits eternal punishment. And so God had to intercede for us by providing a means in which his laws could be satisfied. And the way that God did that was to allow the innocent to suffer for the guilty. And so he sent Jesus Christ into the world, the innocent Son of God. And there on the cross of Calvary, Christ took our punishment. All of our sins were, the punishment for our sins were inflicted upon God's own Son. And so in that way, Christ became our substitute and also our sacrifice. And what Christ did on the cross of Calvary is he actually suffered all the pangs of hell for every person who would trust in him. Now, these people who trust in him are the very same ones that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. Now, if we think about this, uh, what if Christ had suffered hell for every person without exception? I mean, what if Christ had suffered hell for everyone who doesn't believe as well as those who do believe? Well, if that were true, then the result of it would be universal salvation, And that's because uh, there wouldn't be any reason to condemn anyone for whom that penalty of sin has been paid. And so if that were so, that would mean that there are people in hell right now who are suffering for sins that have already been paid for by our substitute. Now, there's no justice in that. Uh, that, That's not the way God's justice works. It's not a, a workable scheme at all. So either you have to do one of two things. You must give up substitutionary atonement, or you must agree to universal salvation. There aren't any other choices in the matter. Now, let's take this whole thing back to Israel again. When God led Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to a place in the desert that was called Mount Sinai. And we know there that on Mount Sinai, uh, God gave all the laws that Israel was to obey. But also at that time, God instituted all the the different types of worship and all the things that they were due to worship him. And covered in that, and all of these things that God gave uh, to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, was the priesthood. And God decided that Aaron would be the one who would have the responsibility of priesthood. And also with that responsibility, he's the one who's to offer sacrifices for the people. Well, what people was Aaron to make sacrifices for? He's the high priest of Israel. And so naturally, he makes sacrifices for Israel. These are God's chosen people. And so when Aaron made the sacrifices, he he didn't come before God and say, No, God, here I am. I'm making a sacrifice for Moabites and for the Ammonites and for the Perizzites. I'm making a sacrifice for all of the Philistines and all the Canaanites that are in the land. I'm making a sacrifice for all people. We know that Aaron didn't do that. Aaron was making a sacrifice for the people of Israel. These are God's chosen people. Now, who is Aaron again? He's the high priest of the people. What does the high priest do? He intercedes to God on behalf of the people. And so when he intercedes, when Aaron makes the sacrifice, that sacrifice is for God's chosen nation of Israel. 
Well, then what does the Bible say about Christ? The Bible says that he's our great high priest. Well, whose high priest is he? He's the high priest of the people of God. And when Christ made a sacrifice, it was for those very same people that that were given to him before the foundation of the world. And so when Christ hung on the cross, he didn't say, well, here I am, Heavenly Father, and I am making a sacrifice for everybody who's in hell. And you have to remember that when Christ came into the world, 4,000 years of human history had already passed. So did Christ say, I am making a sacrifice for people that are right now in hell? And did he also say, I'm going to make a sacrifice for people that will be in hell? Well, of course not. Jesus was making a sacrifice for his people. He's the, he's the high priest of God, and he sacrifices for God's people. So in John chapter 10, this is what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He said in John 17, verse 2, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And so what we have in those verses are the election of God. We see the sacrifice of Christ for the elect of God. But then we have to go one step further than that. Now remember, these are God's chosen people. There is a substitute for them. There is a sacrifice for them. All of that's been taken care of. But the problem is, these people are still dead in trespasses and sin. They have no spiritual life in them as yet. And so God has to intercede with another step in this covenant. And what God does, he also provides the Spirit. Now the sacrifice is not yet recognizable. That's because the people are spiritually dead. So they can't see God yet. And so before they can see him, they have to be made alive. Well, what does the Bible say about this? Jesus said in John six sixty three, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So he says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. And what that means is it's the spirit that brings to life. The Spirit gives life. In Ephesians 2 verse 1 it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. You hath he made alive that are dead in trespasses and sin. And so what we have here is God's grace interceding on the behalf of those who are dead sinners, bringing them to life in order that they might understand the gospel of Christ. Well, this is the very same thing that Jesus told Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, this is to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. In other words, you cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ until you are regenerated. You have to be made alive. You must be regenerated in order to see, or in other words, for you to have faith. Now, that is not what we're told in most churches today. We're told that we have to have faith in order to be regenerated. And so they tell us that we have to do what a dead man simply cannot do. We have no spiritual life in us, so how can we have faith? Well, Jesus gives the order the opposite way. That's backwards to what Jesus says. We do not have faith in order to be born again. We're born again or we're regenerated in order to have faith. And that's why faith is called the fruit of regeneration. So the Spirit makes you alive and that's how you come to Christ. Well, then who does he make alive? 
Jesus makes that very clear. Let's turn to John chapter 6. You need to read this in your Bible. We'll look at John chapter 6. Who does the Spirit make alive? And who are those who come to Christ? Well, Jesus tells us about this in John 6, verse number 35. There it says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye have also seen me and believe not. Now, who's Jesus talking to there? He's speaking to unbelievers. Jesus said, You are not of my sheep. And he says, you've seen me, but you don't believe in me. Now, there are some there who did believe, and there are some people there who didn't believe in him. Well, who are the people who believe in him? Well, notice what he says in the next verse, verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now there is Jesus' answer to this very thing we're talking about. The Spirit calls those who have been given to Jesus, and they come, and they always come. Who can come to Christ? Well, it's certainly not any spiritually dead person. It has to be the one that the Lord calls and enables to come. Now, look at verse number 44. It says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, God is very particular about who he draws. Who are the ones he draws? They would be the ones that he covenanted with the Son before the foundation to the world to give. And so these are the ones that are given to the Son, and these are also the ones that are effectually drawn by the Spirit of God. Now what we see here is the power, the might, and the determination of a sovereign God. This is not you choosing God. This is God choosing you. And it's the only way that it works. And God does everything to bring about infallibly all things necessary to bring you to salvation. Now, has God then done all that he can do for you, and now God leaves things up to you? Not on your life. I mean, God has done everything that he needed to do to secure your salvation infallibly. Now, Paul makes this unbreakable chain of God's salvation very clear to us in Romans chapter 8. We read these scriptures last week. But the continuity of all this and how it works together we find right here in verses 29 through 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also glorified. And whom he justified, or justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So these ones that are called, these are one and the same, according to the scripture, that are foreknown and have been predestined. Well, we already know when they were predestined because Scripture says it's before the foundation of the world. And so these are the ones that Christ brings to himself. He justifies them. He pays for all of their sin. And that's what we talked about with the sacrifice that's made. Christ pays the penalty. And then these ones that are predestined, called, and justified, he also glorifies. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought for just a moment. He glorifies And that brings us to the next part of this covenant. Number four is that God rewarded because of the covenant. 
So here is a covenant that's established with Abraham, and the reward of this covenant is the inheritance that was promised. Now, when Israel came into the land, Israel didn't just waltz into Canaan, and the Canaanites looked at them and said, well, here come those Israelites, so let's pack our bags, let's move on out of here. They didn't do that. They fought to keep every inch of that land, and Israel fought to take over every inch of the land. There was a battle that took place. They fought for this. So how do they possess that land? Well, I remind you of this, that, uh, that every single Israelite in, in Israel, they were called to the battle. They all had to fight, but they didn't win these battles, and they did not possess the land by the power of their armies. It wasn't superior armed forces. Now remember, not only did they face Jericho, but they faced those cities that were in the north. These were cities that had uh, chariots of iron. They had horses that Israel didn't have. And yet time after time, Israel continues to win all of these battles to possess the land. And so they prevail, not under their own might or under their own power, but they prevail by the power of God. Now even though they prevail by the power of God, they had to show up for the fight. And they had to act as if they're the only ones who could make this happen. They had to fight for it. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us, first of all, that perseverance is required. Perseverance is required. Now, sometimes uh, I can almost tear what little bit of hair I have out that's left here. When, When I read or I hear Baptist preachers who say that the Bible says nowhere, the Bible does not say that we have to persevere. There are so many scriptures on perseverance in the Bible. Did you know if you started cutting out the scriptures that talked about perseverance, you wouldn't have enough left to bind or keep the the copy of the Bible held together. You couldn't hold the binding together if you cut out all the verses that talk about perseverance. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. How is it that you lay hold on eternal life? You have to fight a good fight of faith. You have to keep on fighting. Jesus says in John 8, verse 31, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. He said in Matthew 10, verse 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. In Revelation 2, verse 7, it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Luke says in in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest, thou, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Jude says in Jude verse 3, Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I could go on. There's scripture after scripture that talk about perseverance. And yet there are men who say, the Bible does not require that we persevere. Now I want to ask people, are you going to believe the, the college professors in our, in our universities, our Baptist universities, who say perseverance is not required of God's people? 
Well, then you need to tell Jesus about it. Tell Jude about it. Tell Paul about it. Tell Luke about it. Tell Moses. Tell Abraham. Tell Joseph. Tell them all because they haven't got that information yet. I ask you, who are you going to believe? You're going to believe what these Baptist colleges are teaching or are you going to believe the infallible inspired word of God? And not only that, what about let's going back and listening to what our Baptist forefathers had to say? I want to remind you of what our statement of faith says. It's the New Hampshire Confession of Faith of 1833 that was written by Baptists. And here's what it says. We believe that such only are real believers as endure to the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark that distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare. And that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Friends, the Bible teaches us that perseverance is required for God's people. The Bible says we must remain faithful. Now, the question is, how do we do it? How do we remain faithful? Well, we don't do it any more by our energy and by our flesh than Joshua could knock down the walls of Jericho with his army. The only way that it can be accomplished is through the power of God. But the human side of this is perseverance. God says you must persevere. But then there is a divine side of it. Because whatever God requires, God will enable. God says you must persevere. But then his side comes along and he backs that up. Now the divine side of this whole thing is our preservation. So secondly, our preservation is assured. Now there are many Baptists who say, well yes, I I do believe in eternal security. I believe that. But really what eternal security is for them is a cloak to hide all of their, their, their evil thoughts and the wickedness that they want to commit. And so they claim that they're saved, but their salvation never produces any kind of change in their life. They say, well, don't tell anybody that when you receive Christ as your Savior that you have to change, that something happens to your life, that you become different. Don't tell people that. And in fact, you know that there are people out there that call themselves soul winners that are knocking on doors and they never tell people that there's going to be a change that takes place in your life. You evidence salvation. And these people, they go crazy when you try to talk like this. And they say, well, that's lordship salvation. You're teaching lordship salvation. Well, my Bible tells me that there's nobody who can claim eternal security unless they do uh, persevere in godliness and holiness. Now, you can call it lordship salvation if you want. If that's your definition, then absolutely, yes, I do believe in lordship salvation. There is a requirement of change. Now, does that mean that if I'm going to lose my salvation, or does it mean that I'm the one who works to keep salvation? Absolutely not. But what it does tell me is that when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, there will be evidence of that salvation. There will be evidence in my life. And if there is no evidence... Then, you're, then I'm not saved. So what does this mean? Well, it means you can throw out all these multitudes of confessions that people claim in their street preaching and throw out all these multitudes of confessions that are made by door knockers if it does not produce converts to the holiness and righteousness of God. If it doesn't make a change, there's no evidence that they're saved. Now here, we learn that God saves and he saves forever. He brings about glorification of Romans uh, that we've just read about in Romans 8, verse 30. But he doesn't do that without the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling the believer. And so if the Holy Spirit 
If you claim that you've been saved, you claim you have the Holy Spirit, there's no change in your life. If you not persevere in holiness, then there's no cause to believe that you are preserved or that you'll be finally glorified. Now, what have we learned then as we go through this? What have we learned about the inheritance of the saints by, by looking this in Joshua? We learn that God established a covenant with his people. And here is a covenant that goes all the way back before the foundation of the world. We learn that God bestowed this covenant, that it's particular in nature, and this covenant concerns a definite, particular group of people. We've learned that God interceded for the covenant, and that's because man is dead in trespass and sin, and so God must come to him first, and he must make that person alive in order that they might realize this covenant, that they might have faith in Christ. We've learned that the only ones that God makes alive are the ones that are part of this covenant. We've learned that God rewards because of the covenant. He brought Israel into the land, and he didn't fail to help them to realize that promise that was in the covenant. And by this, we also learn that God covenanted with Christ to bring to him, before the foundation of the world, a covenant was made to bring to Christ all who are a part of that covenant. And these people will not fail to come. Every one of them, without exception, will receive that heavenly possession. Now, let's distill this down just a little bit further so we understand exactly what we're talking about. We can start off with the letter T. And T stands for total depravity. What total depravity means is that man is dead in trespasses and sin. All parts, every faculty in man is tainted by sin, and he must have Holy Spirit regeneration. The second letter is U, which stands for unconditional election. What this means is that just like Jacob, uh, God saw nothing in us, nothing that he should, that would cause him to choose us. We hadn't done anything good, but God simply chooses us by the good pleasure of his will. God chooses out of free grace. He chooses from a heart that's full of mercy and love. And so unconditional election just simply means that when God chose anyone, he never saw anything in that person to choose them. God chose because of grace. The next letter we have is L, and this stands for limited atonement, or we can call it particular redemption. And what it means is that God in his justice made Christ a literal substitute. And all those for whom atonement has been made really do, in fact, have their sins forgiven. We're not talking about hypothetical salvation. No one is hypothetically saved according to what they do, but they are infallibly saved based upon the merits of what Jesus Christ has done. I stands for irresistible grace. And that means that all that have been given to the Father are drawn to Christ for salvation. These are all regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and they do, in fact, repent, and they put their faith in Christ. They are called, as Christ said, he says, they shall come to me. And Christ did not say, they shall come to me if some preacher can persuade them to come to me. It's the Holy Spirit that always draws effectually. Then the P stands for perseverance of the saints. All those that are saved receive Christ as their Savior, and they receive him also as their Lord. They will persevere according to the power and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And the Bible teaches every one of them will be, shall be, preserved unto eternal life. 
So God made a covenant, and then he gave us this pretty little flower that we could remember it by. It's called a tulip. God is sovereign in salvation. God does it all. He doesn't depend on man for even the smallest speck of anything that man could contribute to his salvation. It's all of God. And that's the God we serve. And that's why we have an inheritance. And that is for no other reason. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great truths that we find in your word. We thank you, Lord, that salvation is in no way dependent upon us. If it were then there would be no way that we could be saved. We are failures. We cannot come to you. We are dead in trespasses and sin. It took your son coming into the world and then the Holy Spirit to reveal him to us. And that's the only way that we can ever be saved. Help us to realize this, Lord. Help us to claim these precious truths. And we thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us for salvation and that we put our faith and trust in you and we're saved. Speak to our people tonight in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.